You're listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. This episode features audio from a previously aired live video webcast. Sagas and Sass Season 3. I'm Tara, along with fellow hosts Jonathan and Nami. This episode will cover Part 3 of The Fall of Babel, the fourth and final installment in Josiah Bancroft's Books of Babel series. If you're watching live, join us in the chat, or after the fact, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Sagas and Sass to continue the conversation. And just a reminder, the views expressed in this show are those of the hosts as individuals and do not necessarily represent the show as a whole. Welcome back to The Fall of Babel. Take your seats for what is absolutely one hell of a ride, because as it happens, the state of the art has arrived at the apex of the tower, and Edith is not going to be ignored. She's the Thinx's emissary, after all, so they can't keep her out even if they want to. So she busts into Nabos, even though they only have the vaguest idea of what they need to do. Though they are waylaid for just a little bit, because the Nabosans are in the middle of voting on whether or not to allow the Hod orphans to stay, and on whether or not Adam and Runa should be hanged. Don't worry, though. Despite the fact that the Nabotians technically vote to expel the orphans and hang Adam and Runa, Edith is able to convince them that going against the bricklayer's wishes and harming Adam, who is an emissary of the things, is not a good idea. Turns out, when they have to vote by a show of hands versus anonymously, they are far more inclined to make the right decision, which is a lot to unpack. But hey, here we are. After convincing the Nabosans to, you know, not be total assholes, Edith Valletta, Ren, and Redelman are led to the Warren where they head to the lowest point and instead of facing the usual cyclone, enter an area that is entirely quiet. At first, they aren't sure what to do until Redelman announces that he paired a mechanical moth with Senlin's beacon. Super convenient, that, because as we know, Senlin is ensconced in the Sphinx's lair with Marat and his Wakeman. Fortunately, Edith and have to down through decades of refuse to reach what is essentially an elevator to the Sphinx's lair. But soon enough, they reach their destination. Problem is, there's something different about the Lightning Sea. What was previously a stormy sea has become a sucking vortex. And Edith knows that the fact that the Lightning is running away is absolutely not a good sign. But of course they don't have a choice but to keep on moving through the room where the Sphinx's automatons and Byron's predecessors, where they are eventually greeted by Mr. Eeks, one of the early era footmen. He's not much help, so they resolve to keep on looking around, until their moth guides decides to settle on an air vent, which leads them to go against their battle judgment and split up their party, as Valletta is the only one who can actually follow the moth. Hilariously, Redelman does offer to accompany her, and it straight up looks at his fucking buddy, but it's not gonna happen. In the end, perhaps it was for the best that Valletta went her own way for a bit, because soon enough the rest of them end up in the conservatory, where they find the Sphinx, or rather, the Sphinx's body, as such as, such as it is. They don't exactly have time to mourn, but instead set Redelman to work on trying to retrieve her last words from a warped recording while Edith and Irene remove the Sphinx's body to the pedestal that she had prepared for herself in her little museum. By the time they return to the workshop, Redelman is able to play them some of the recording, which includes a spiel for Marat in case he won the day, and then one for Edith as well, in hopes that she has prevailed and will take on the leadership role. Only the recorder burns itself out, and Edith is left with half or less of whatever the Sphinx meant to say to her. 
and thus continues the series' maddening cycle of if they would just talk to each other. <sighs> Meanwhile, Valetta finds Senlin, they escape temporarily, Della finds them, they start fighting what appears to be a losing battle, and then they are narrowly rescued by Rin, only to end up facing Marat and his Wakeman again soon after. After that, a big battle ensues, and the TLDR version of this is Thornton dies, Redelman sacrifices himself to save Edith from Marat, Marat dies, and good riddance, Gedge, Kay, and Delith are incapacitated, and our heroes survive. How many heroes are left? <laughs> Albeit narrowly. And they're certainly not unscathed. So, they head back to Nevos, where Adam has installed the pyramid's capstone as instructed. Valida dashes off to retrieve him, apparently to bring him back to the state of the art before the big whatever is going to happen happens. Because again, they only have part of the story here, and all they really know is that the ship the state of the art can't be too close to Nebos when the thing happens. But they are met by Anne, who explains what we already know, that Maria left the ship with Olivet to go for a walk and hasn't returned. Don't worry, though, they're fine. Maria just kind of adopted two of the hot orphans and was assigned a home. And yes, all of this happened in a very short span of time. But the important thing is that Senlin now has to rush off to go looking for her, which leaves only Edith, Iren, and Anne returning to the state of the art, just in time to very narrowly escape as the entire ringdom of Nebos separates itself from the top of the tower and wait for it, wait for it, flies away into fucking space, y'all. Okay. So, a quick recap on where everyone is before we get into whatever the hell that's about. Senlin, Maria, Oliva, Adam, and Valida are still in Nebos when it disafucking peers, while Edith, Irene, Anne, Byron, Tarot, and Finn Gold remain behind on the state of the art. Did anyone take bets on whether this series would have a happy ending? Because the forever separation of these friends doesn't seem so happy to me. Not to mention the fact that Edith is left in charge of the tower, which is an even bigger mess than it was before somehow. And sure, she'll probably do the best job she possibly can, but also clearly she's not going to get even a little bit of that rest that she really deserves after everything that has happened. And while everyone on Nevos is safe for now, and there are plenty of provisions and whatnot to get them to their destination, they have no idea where that destination is. And there's always the chance that they'll run into like space pirates or warships or whatever. Plus, while Valida and Adam have made up and get to be pilot and first mate of the spaceship, and Redelman is apparently somehow part of the ship itself and therefore might be able to figure out how to make more of the medium to keep Valida alive... Even as this final installment ends, Senlin and Maria are only on the verge of making up. Maybe. Hopefully. So, we have reached the conclusion of this enjoyable yet maddening series, and boy do we have a lot to talk about. Oh my god. I just... <laughs> I feel like I just need to say... I, I need to um, read to you guys the message that I sent to Tara right as I finished this series because um, I'm not saying... That it was a really good message, but it was a really good message. I've had a few people actually who I've convinced to recently read the series have messaged me and been like, What the hell happened at the end? Like it just turned into sci-fi right there at the end, the very end. Like, okay. All right. So so this message as of um, April 7th, so you guys know when I actually finished this, because I finished this like really fast, but I wrote, holy shit, holy shit, Senlin ascends to fucking space? 
I have two chapters, but oh my damn, this was a trigger anime the whole time? Uh, <laughs> I stand by that, because every trigger anime I've seen ends with them somehow going to space, and it doesn't always make sense, but they end up in space, and I'm like, all right, well, and so this was a trigger anime. And I would like to say that it was only after the fact that I finished it that I realized that, like, top of the tower coming off is essentially a disc, and Nabos is like a little dome on top, so it literally looks like a UFO. Yeah. And that that tickled me a lot. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I would like to say, um, show of hands if you saw this coming. Glad we're all on the same page. Cool. No. <laughs> cool. No. No, it's, it's sort of like uh, reading um, San Brandon Sanderson's work, like knowing that they're all connected somehow. And I, I've read uh, the, the Mistborn trilogy and all of the Stormlight Archive and um, oh gosh, there's one more that, and I'm blanking on the name of it, but it's a, it's a Elantris. No, I don't think I've read Elantris's Warbreaker, a singular one. Might be Warbreaker. Elantris it, was a standalone. So yeah, there, there, he's got quite a few standalones, but it, I don't think it was. It wasn't Elantris. It was. It was. I don't know. I'll I'll think of it, you know, two hours from now when it doesn't matter. But and it wasn't until I read, you know, when I read the the I read the Mistborn trilogy first, then all of the Stormlight Archive, then that that standalone book. And it wasn't until I read the standalone book that I really there was some stuff that happened in it that made me put. There's a character that's in it that's in one of the other series that made me kind of like, oh, okay, so this is how it's all gonna, you know, be connected or whatever. But as soon as this happened in this book, while I absolutely was not expecting it at at all, like at all, at all, at all, uh, I was like, oh gosh, it would be really awesome if he's setting up a Cosmere situation. If Bancroft is setting up a Cosmere situation where, because he, I know he's writing a book about hexology or a series about hexology now. I know that what he's writing next, he claims is not is not like a sequel to Books of Babel, but it could be adjacently related. I'm not throwing that off the table. He also, um, I spent a lot of time like digging through Reddit after I finished this. And apparently um, a lot of people are like, Bancroft more, Bancroft more when? Bancroft, we cannot live like this, sir. Please help us. <laughs> and apparently the general consensus is he's not revisiting the series now, but he may future. And I'm, I'm okay with that. I will say, though, I feel like when I was reading the ending of this, I had so much of like, what the hell? What the hell? What the hell? But like, thematically, I'm not mad. Like, thematically, mm -hmm. it makes a lot of sense for the series to end with them going to space with Senlin literally ascending into space. Cause the whole thing about like, all right, and correct me if I'm wrong because I have very rudimentary at best Bible knowledge. Um, <laughs> but from my understanding, the story of the Tower of Babel is that, is that like humanity tries to make this tower to reach the heaven and God is like, I smite you, you're full of pride sit the fuck down and also speak different languages i guess mm -hmm. and but so like thematically the thought that the fact that the tower of babel literally does reach the heavens going to space and ending on this sci-fi note of there are other things out here there are other towers there is something more going on but like not telling us that answer does thematically make sense with like the tower of babel reaches for the answers in heaven and so i was like all right I get this. And also, 
I'm going to be really real here. I'm an absolute trigger anime fangirl. So the fact that this ended like a trigger anime was like, we're going to space now, bud. I'm like, all right, so sequel with robot battles in space when? (laughs) (laughs) I don't necessarily need a full sequel or whatever, right? When I first finished this, I was like, oh my God, there's just too much left unanswered, right? Mm. I, I, I wasn't expecting a happy ending. You know, for for sure, like, wasn't expecting that. I I mean, I think that instead of a bunch of character death, which we talked about, oh, who's going to, you know, who's going to survive? Who's going to die? I I really, I thought that there was a chance more characters were going to die. And they didn't. But that doesn't make it any less sad because they're all, like, this group of of friends that has really become a family. I mean, Iron and Belita are never going to see each other again. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think... Like, the part of that that, like, makes it really sad is that so many people that are very close are, like, shoved apart in a way that, like, they couldn't have resolution at all. Yeah. So, like, it was the saddest ending that we could have gotten without death because Belita literally, like, runs away from Iron again and that's it. And, like, goddamn, imagine the trauma that's going to give Iron. Like, let's not even touch that. Um, And then, like, Edith literally, like in passing tells Senlin that she can't like love him out of like respect for Moria and then straight up pushes him into a glass cube to be with his wife who doesn't even really seem to want him anymore and like all of that and then just like the whole Senlin Moria situation like I'm actually really happy with how they ended on not a reunion note because I felt like after everything that had happened to them and how much they had changed, that would have been kind of a cheap ending because they've been apart for literal years. They need to relearn each other. And I think that's what the show, what the book is like showing us. They're like, they are relearning each other and they will get back together eventually. But the fact that it's like not just a, oh, we're back in the same physical space, therefore things are happy and good. The fact that that wasn't the ending that happened is like I really liked that and then like just like so uh friends sad I mean I want to hear Jonathan's opinion on this but real quick I want to tell you my my saddest moment though as sad as I was about Edith and Sendlin not getting a real reunion and also not us not like us not getting this like polyamorous relationship that I kind of knew probably wasn't going to happen but also would have been amazing I, I was sad, obviously, about Valida and Eren, but honestly, I think it was when Valida was like, oh, no, squit. Right? And I was like, no, squit. I'm squit. I forgot about squit. <laughs> no. I'm really hoping that poor Anne, like, who obviously has Eren, but also needs something to take care of, somebody to take care of, is going to, like, take squit into her possession and be best squirrel mom like that's 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 what i'm picturing i would need i need like fan art of Anne taking care of squit to like make my heart feel better about the fact that belita and squit are separated forever i would love that for Anne. i just want all the best things for Anne. i was not expecting this ending at all it was almost as shocking as the last show I watched that had essentially the same, I wouldn't call it ending, but at least season ending, which was when the hundred ended up leaving earth and being out in space, which blew my mind at the time. Um, I don't, I don't have as much of an issue ending the series here. Cause I think 
you, you did have a, to me, a decent resolution of things as far as where the characters ended up. Um, I thought Adam is in a stable relationship and he, he got the happy ending, I think. Yes. Um, that, that was the happy ending. Uh, and Aran and Anne got the hap happy-ish ending. Um, I'm still not sure where Finn Gull is going to, if he gets the happy ending and gets back with his wife and child yet, but I, I don't, haven't decided whether that's good or bad either. Uh, I think, I think my hope there, not to interrupt you to, as soon as I'm done saying this, please go on. But I think my hope with Finn Gull is that this experience has changed him. And that also if, if he works with Edith, right, that he is going to be able to, reunite with his family and build them the home that he wanted to build them, but without harming other people along the way. That is my hope for that. Um, and I, I do, I do think this experience changed him. Not entirely. He's still who he is in a lot of ways, but I, I do think that there's a good chance that he can reunite with his family and give them the home he wanted because he, he is good at being, you know, a business person, a leader, whatever. And if he doesn't have to abide by the tower, like, like the, the past, you know, rules or lack of them in the tower, if, if he has a more stable, you know, leader to follow and whatnot, I, I do think it's possible for him to be a better person. And I think him having it, the family, he clearly loves his family and his kids and, right. and he no. clearly like had, while he for sure had his own goals and, and, and survival in mind. Um, he also knew that Marat was like needed to be stopped. So I, I, I have, I have hopes for him, you know? <laughs> um, I, I'm not, I'm not sure I'm as enthusiastic for a sequel as you guys seem to be. <laughs> I'm not sure I really... Oh, I don't know that I want a sequel. I would like to see some like little novellas, kind of like Sanderson does with the, his little side novellas, um, Edge Dancer and uh, Dawn Shard. You know, I, I I would love to see something like that, focusing on Tarot and or Finn um, or and Squit. Let's get a Squit novel, really novella, really, but. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I see what you really want. Your real, your real purpose here is a squid novel. Oh my god, a children's book, a children's book about squid, please. So cute. So yeah, yeah I, 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 I wouldn't say I want a sequel, but I, I, I would have liked some more answers, and I would love to see some like short stories or novellas. I, yeah, a sequel, I don't think so. Yeah, this, this for me hit like that weird sweet spot of like just crazy enough that I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll take it. And just enough answers that I'm like, all right, I got answers and just not enough answers that I'm like, mm, I could take more. I don't need more, but I kind of want more, but I'm all right. I would probably yeah. read books of Babel fan fiction. Ooh. That's right. Yeah, That's yeah I don't, well, I say it honestly need a sequel. It would have been nice to know exactly. I still don't, haven't figured out what exactly the whole point of the tower was. I mean, it's an arc, but for what purpose? What, well, I mean, the, the, the Earth was. I mean, the, the Earth itself wasn't in a cataclysm until the arc threatened it to be into a cataclysm. So I'm not exactly sure what the point of. Well, so the reason the reason the cataclysm was a threat to begin with was because they murdered the bricklayer 
before. Right. No, I, I get that. But so, so if he had had, if he had been able to finish his job, and if if everything had gone according to his plan, probably the tower wouldn't have become what it was, and it also definitely wouldn't have, you know, gotten to the point where it was about to literally boil over and explode. But that said, I think that, I think that, um, I mean, the point, the point of the tower was to generate the energy that would eventually power Nabos the ship, right? To no, no, that part I get. I okay. get. The, I, I get that the tower is to, pro to to do the ship. I don't see what the purpose of the ship is. But arcs are usually to escape a cataclysm. That's why you build it. So I can again. I can understand hypothetically the bricklayer building this ship for to, to escape the eventual cataclysm that he anticipates for some reason. But one, I we never saw that reason. And the only reason that there seemed to be any cataclysm at all was because of the tower on this, on this itself, planet. which if it hadn't been built, you know, it on this planet though. I think that I think it's kind of almost the opposite of what you're saying an arc is, right? I think that instead of it being an arc to escape this planet and its cataclysm, it's an arc to go to a planet that had a cataclysm and, and has the ability to be repopulated. And yeah, the player is clearly not from this place, right? Well, like, I think the other thing is though that like I don't really the fact that they leave it open-ended about what the ship is for is, I think, part of the whole thing. I think calling it an arc makes it sound like a misnomer in that its purpose isn't to escape a tragedy because no tragedy has occurred. And I, and I think by focusing on the arc vocabulary, we are perhaps misconstruing like the purpose because the real purpose of it is you go back to the title of the first book, it's Ascension. It's further ascension. It's going up more. It's going out there. It's exploring more of the tower. But now the tower is space. And so, like, thematically, I think that's what's going on. Um, as far as, like, you know, all of, like, when Valida is, like, thinking about what it's actually for. And she's, like, hypothesizing. She's, like, this could be a warship. We could be, like, and, like, you know, there's so many things that it could actually be for, like, specifically. And yeah, I do wish we had a, I, I wish we had like a more clear answer about what that was for. That would have been nice. But I think, I think the, the intention was never escape. The intention was always ascension because the bricklayer's yeah. whole thing is that in the tower, if people can become better and work together and like all of this, you'll be able to prosper and go to Nebos and ascend further. So it was never about escape. It was about ascension. Beyond that, I still want to know what they're ascending to. Well, I, I did enjoy the the instructions w w of the bricklayer to uh, Valletta and um, Adam to, to don't touch anything until you RTFM. Um, <laughs> that was good. <laughs> and also, I mean, not only not only did Adam grow as a person, right? And that was like have some good character development and end up with his happy ending in a in a relationship with Runa, who appears to be a lovely person. Uh, he also gets to be the the pilot in a way. I mean, it's it's I guess it's like kind of 
in quotes because he's not really piloting anything unless he absolutely has to. But I, I he 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 got to use his mechanic skills and in using his mechanic skills, he becomes a pilot and, and he's already proven himself as a leader by doing what he did with the hot orphans and, you know, fighting for them and everything. So I, I'm still kind of meh about him, about us not getting anything from Adam for, you know, like what the, the second half book. of book two and all of book three, but I, I I'm still kind of you know I'm still kind of thinking that this could have been like a five book series because this book was just looking at it compared to it was longer. It's, it's the Hog King was long, but it's longer than that, and it crams a lot into you know th there were definitely things that felt rushed. Um, like parts one and two, you know, part, which obviously we talked about a couple of weeks ago, part one was all Adam, basically. Um, part two was going back with, you know, Edith and all them and figuring out what was going on on the state of the art while Adam was having Tom and his life in Nabos or sort of whatever. I don't think it was really that. But, you know, part three is very short, but so much happens in it. I mean, all the action really um i mean I god just, that fight scene was i'll say this though that fight scene in the sphinx's lair was so long so long i was like oh my god this is ever ending like kill the bad guys I, I was, well, it was just it was again. just like a modern action movie it's too, too the, yeah. the fight scenes go on for five minutes too long yeah i for me actually in a way i kind of did like how everything sped up in the in the like part three because I'm always the sort of person that I think pacing in a book should reflect the time it actually takes the thing to happen. And, you know, like, yeah, the first couple books were a lot slower than this, but, like, years went by in the first couple books, you know? And so, like, having, like, everything crammed into the end there, sort of, like, that claustrophobic feeling of, oh, my God, everything is happening at once, really, like, put me into the character's shoes there of, like, yeah, everything's happening to them at once. That being said, I do wish that we got, like, that first half of Adam going to Nebos in, like, the middle of book three. Because I felt like, for me, since we were basically going back in time to, like, book two, the middle of book two, that threw me a bit, pacing-wise. But with the exception of that, like, I kind of liked the frantic energy of part three because, like, really, that's what it is. That whole part takes place over what, like, a day maybe and they're all just collectively losing their shit because they're like we gotta do it now everything's gonna explode and i was like yeah yeah i feel that energy right now <laughs> well i mean it was less it was like a pacing issue for me and more just the the fight scene part was just it was so many things happening at once and I even though I, I mean I did finish this a couple weeks ago but I had to you know, I'm trying to write this summary and I'm going back and I'm like I still I had to look through the book for not even kidding you like more than five minutes to figure out who the fuck died like I knew Marat died in the fight scene right but it was the other the other Wakeman right who I was like I know at least one other Wakeman died I know that. Gedge and Kale, and I 
believe Deleth survived. But who the hell? Like, we couldn't we couldn't remember his name when we did uh, our last episode either. But it's Thornton. It's Thornton. It's Thornton. Yeah. It's the, He's gone. It's the only part of him that is flesh and blood. He uses it to become drunk, and I'm like, you know, I don't like you, but I can respect those life choices. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, not to like kind of go totally off the rails or change the subject here, but. Um, it is interesting to me that and Deleth did survive, right? I'm not yes. wrong. Okay. She did. So because I, I know at the at the very end, you know, uh, I think it's Byron is talking to Edith and he's like, Are you sure you wanna like make peace with Gedge and give him this power to restore, you know, Kale and Deleth? And Edith is like, Yes, I do, because we need we need people, you know, and he's smart and i think that they can be good and i'm just over here thinking about delith like drawing penises on the inside <laughs> i feel like all edith has to do is make delith a little card that has a penis on it and give it to her and delith will be like bffs let go i think it would be hilarious if she made her like like flash cards that she could hold up with her legs <laughs> Oh my god, that would be so cute. <laughs> but you know, and, and here's the thing: like, I do I think that I, Thornton maybe I, Thornton I'm torn about. I I don't know that he was you know one of those characters who is redeemable at all. And it wasn't just the drunkenness; he was an asshole. Like, oh yeah, a he real was a asshole. Kale was you know. Delith, Delith obviously is just she she has had a life and it's been not great and I feel like she's she could be redeemable if she's with the right people because she really Delith, has been kind of like forced into a very bad situation all the time. Delith also strikes me as like very Rettleman-esque yeah. very like childlike chaotic neutral will absorb what's around her. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, you know, Gedge is one of those like he could turn out to be like bad, mad scientist, but also I think with him again, he he's always felt like I'm so smart, but I'm so powerless. Hence him making that big suit for himself. And I think for him, the acknowledgement of his intelligence and the ability to not be constantly double like sassed by Marat about his intelligence will be enough. Yeah. for him hopefully hopefully and and uh, kale also just bad hands dealt to him like left and right and <laughs> literally <laughs> oh lord <laughs> <laughs> you did this one to yourself <laughs> i mean listen i'm glad i asked her that was a good one i'll give you that <laughs> I don't know, uh, jonathan what do you what do you think about these wakemen about edith like letting them live and kind of making common cause with them, do you think? Well, I, I think in some ways it makes sense if she thinks they're redeemable. I mean, they're going to owe her for if nothing else. Um, and, you know, if she's actually going to try to be the Sphinx. Oh, she is. Well, I, I know, but if you're from her perspective, you're going to try to be the Sphinx, and you don't have no allies at all, it's a problem. 
I mean, she has allies. Yeah, but, but, that, but, yeah, they're, they're, the, problem but the problem the Sphinx had is, I, I'm, a, I'm assuming at one point the Sphinx had a lot of allies and a lot of Wakemen. And as the Sphinx receded from an active participation in the tower for whatever reason, I'm not sure what was it was, the chicken or the egg, as she saw her allies leave her, did she recede or did she recede and then the allies abandoned her? I, you know, I'm not a hundred percent certain on that. I think it's more the latter, but um, she, you know, with, without allies, there's just no way one person can do anything. So, so, so I, I will vent one thing about, you know, the author definitely shares my disdain for what I call the for-profit press. Um, with the acorn, you know, basically just making up shit to sell papers. And as someone who personally believes that when the networks and the press really became a real business as opposed to a lost leader in this country that harmed our society. But oh, I don't disagree. And <laughs> I mean the, the acorn is like a it, it's like a hard, news. It's, it, well is it though it's because it's like it's weird because they know what they're putting out is kind of bullshit but yeah fox news also <laughs> I, I don't know also the but it, it's 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 bullshit in this way that's like it's so it's, I think it's, it's, I think it's like fox news and more like new york Post, I which is like owned by news. Fox News. <laughs> God, is it? I don't know these things. Well, for me, the acorn is more like the onion in the sense yeah. that, like, onion, huh? it knows that it's full of bullshit. And it's like, guys, look at this bullshit. And the people who see the bullshit are like, yeah, look at this bullshit. And then there's the idiots who will look at an ape at an onion article and be like, this is a real thing that the liberals are doing. And like, you know, like, those people exist in this world, which is absurd. There are people who read The Onion and think it is real. And I think that's what The Acorn is, while yeah. also throwing in the commentary that like propaganda has already shaped people and people are going to believe what they want to believe. And that just because another source that they don't believe reports the truth doesn't mean they're going to believe that source. And so it's like, I think it's like the post Fox News commentary. So like, so like, it's not even so much the commentary on news and news anchors and like bias in media. It's the commentary on once people have that bias, having good resources isn't going to really change that. And I think that's the specific commentary the the acorn is making. But that being said, Fox News can go die in a ditch. I still can't decide to this day if like the anchors actually believe like this, like the vitriol they're spewing, or if they just like no give us diarrhea. It gives bad news. It gives. I a think bad it depends on the anchor. Everywhere. Honestly, I think I some think of them so do, too. and some of them don't. But it gives such a bad rap to reporters and like actual like into like like journalists with honor which makes me feel so sad because like journalist is like a dirty word these days because people like think things like fox news and like i have a friend who is a reporter so i feel like so like i i like 
<laughs> it makes me feel so bad for like reporters and journalists because I'm like, I'm sorry that you know, just as I as a biologist feel bad because everybody thinks do- like like medical professionals are lying, and I'm like, that is the acorn is the onion is my, my <laughs> thought piece. That is my thought piece. <laughs> I had one brain cell today, and I used it to generate that idea. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I I, I think you're right there. I I think it's less Fox News and more. Because, I mean, the editor even approaches them and says, yeah, I know what I write is bullshit, but it's not my fault these dumbasses believe it. But you're you're not wrong in that, you know, this like sort of because they are for profit media, they're just going to write whatever is going to get them sales. Right. And. I mean, also, it, it is, you know, th- this is this is actually from, you know, part two, but when the the, the newsboys are, are making bets or dares about whether or not they can, or whether or not they can actually go to the state of the art because everybody's scared of them. Uh, and unfortunately, that does lead to hell, you know, being allowed to land because they think he's from the acorn. Which which ended up having no bearing on that. It, it had no purpose. Yeah. I, I think it was, was unneeded. I agree. But <laughs> anyway, I, think, I think it was mostly just about like he couldn't just go away forever, maybe. And that's another reason why I think this should this this series should have been more books. I think there yeah. are things that Bancroft wanted to happen but the thing is like I'm pretty sure way before he ever got a book deal with Orbit or anything he only ever wanted it to be for books but maybe in a way it's like Martin he let the story get away from him a little bit and realized he had to bring it all back together again real fast I kind of read Hell's whole thing a little differently so for me personally it like the reason he kind of died and like it became a secret and nobody really commented on it was like very much like a commentary on like surviving trauma and not wanting to like bring attention to the trauma and just wanting to like move past it in a way and also like sort of the commentary that like like it it, to me it was very much a like, yeah, all this shit went down and he died, but he is so insignificant to me, Maria, at this time that he doesn't even matter. And I don't want people to think he matters. And I don't want to give him that power of mattering by even telling people about him. Because that would that would give him more power. And I don't want him to I mean, I thought that was all clear before they brought him back to die. Oh, for sure. But I just personally enjoyed the fact that Maria got to see him die. That was just mm-hmm. me being like a hell yeah, die, you disgusting abuser. I mean, it wasn't quite as good as Veer waving to the to the head of Morden in Babylon Five. <laughs> I haven't watched Babylon Five, so I mean, you must I watch Babylon Five. <laughs> I don't understand that reference, but I believe you. <laughs> I think that I, I mean, and this is again go like we're we're we, we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago, but uh it would have been really cool for Maria or Anne to 
to be the ones to off Duke Pell, but I love that it was Byron coming back from the not dead. Because again, that that was actually my friend who just finished the books this week was messaging me as he was reading them and as he especially specifically as he was reading Fall of Babel. He was like, Byron, no, this my dear. And I was like, oh no, Byron. Because I he saw Byron, like I he saw that I was online and I'd read the message and I didn't want to leave him on read, but I also didn't want to like yeah, like, just give it like 10 or 20 or 30 pages. I don't remember how many. <laughs> Wait, that's when I just reply with like three crying emojis in a row. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> speaking of Byron, like, so I know that they're all, oh my God, but what about the medium? How is Edith going to power her arm? How is Gedge going to power his ears? Is that well, like, it is seems like they had a, a many, that, many years supply is what. Yeah, but is that question? Am I right? Is that the only part of Gedge that is actually like needing the medium? Is his? I ears? think so. Yeah. So is like, what? His ears? His ears are the only part of him that's like the Sphinx's machines, from what I remember. So I don't know, man. Learn sign language, like <laughs> I don't. <laughs> I don't mean to be rude, but for fuck's sake, like Jalith isn't gonna have legs. Exactly. Right language. Kale will have like forearms or hands. I Edith will just be like. <laughs> I mean, I guess she could take her arm off, so she'll she won't be like that. But <laughs> but I mean, regardless, like. The Sphinx had talked about what goes into making the medium. So clearly that recipe is somewhere, right? Uh, yeah. I think I'm more, like, medium-wise, I'm more concerned about Valletta. Oh. But also, like, she's kind of got a pool of it. So and I'm also, like Redelman is living in the walls of the spaceship. Like, his, his I mean, not living, but his, his like, consciousness is, like, in the spaceship, which is, how the fuck? So, but here, that begs the question. Is just vibing. If his consciousness is living in there, what stops Marat's consciousness from being in there, too? Well, I think that's the difference, though, right? The reason Valletta and Redelman are able to do this is because they are, like, one with the medium. I hope so, so. So I'm, my understanding of this concept is that only Valletta or Redelman would have been able to do this because they have been like immersed with the medium and like sort of become one with the medium, which gives them all their tiny whimy Doctor Who powers. And because of that, Redelman is now just a little, little force ghost vibing out in a spaceship, you know, cause this is cool. Doctor Who Star Wars now? And I'll be honest, that whole thing about Redelman like living in the space, like the, or his consciousness living, I, I don't know living, I know living isn't really the word, but his consciousness being like one with the spaceship, it's, it's, it was a little bit much for me, but like I get that it would be, it, it's basically here, the, here is proof that Valida is not going to run out of medium, right? He's gonna, we know he's gonna figure out how it's made by exploring all the things or whatever. But I also, Actually, going back to him, 
we that he was the one character where we were all like, yeah, he ain't gonna live. There's no way. There's no way he's living, right? But the way he went was good. Yeah, like, it was good. It was a satisfying death. He cuts like, off his own hand and saves Edith. Yep. It was it was really good. I didn't even have time to be like sad that he died because I was too busy being like, "Wow, Rettleman, you rock." Mm-hmm. But he didn't die. He's just the what is it? The ghost in the machine now. <laughs> yeah, and the neighborhood force ghost. I mean, and he. But I mean, that's the thing. We didn't know that right away, right? So, like for no. a bit there, we, as as far as we knew, he was gone forever. Goodbye forever, Edelman. But I think that prior prior to knowing that his consciousness uh, survives inside the the you know ship, the spaceship that is Abos, it was a really it was a good end for him, right? He had mm-hmm. he did some terrible things because of the influence that he was under. And he we talked about this quite a bit couple weeks ago where actually really in the past like probably two or three episodes where he's not good per se there's still too much of maybe his past not 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 his past as a living human being when he was a doctor like a country doctor but his past uh working for the commissioner and doing those bad things in his mind to be totally and also too much of the medium in him to be totally to have that sort of humanity that would say like hey maybe i shouldn't stab this person in this exact part of the head that's going to like incapacitate him and make him just kind of useless for the rest of his life while he's still living but yeah i i i mean was he a good guy I, I I I think he's no. he's chaotic neutral, right? Like, yep. But I think in a way, it was hilarious to me that the chaotic neutral, like science dude, was the one who got access to basically all of time, so he could like YOLO through time and learn about miscellaneous shit. I just thought that was a really satisfying end for an academic, as an academic. <laughs> well, and I mean, can I have some time? Valida also, she's what would you call Valida? Kind of good, me. Yeah, stupid. Yeah, no, she's not stupid. No, she's not. But no, I, that was a that was a joke. Um, I would like to clarify. I do not think she's stupid. I think she has a lot of ADHD, uh-huh. <laughs> untreated, undiagnosed. <laughs> But I think it is very interesting that these two extremely chaotic. I, well, I guess I don't know. Like, I don't know that Rettleman was chaotic before well, he had no. the in his veins. I don't think he was. Yeah, we know nothing about Rettleman to say for sure that he was before. But in a way, like, I think the medium just made him more chaotic. And I think it does make Valida, like, simultaneously more chaotic, but also more grounded. Yeah. Well, I was gonna. I was gonna say Villetta was eventually treated with Redelman. Bad joke. <laughs> that was so bad. It was amazing. <laughs> Eleven out of ten dad joke. Well done, John. <laughs> I, I mean, 
and and well, and that was the one thing we we held off on talking about in our last episode was everything that Volito goes through, particularly the like second half of part two, because Jonathan hadn't really completed, hadn't hadn't read all of it, and there's so much that happens to her that also comes to ahead in part three. That being all of her time travel, like brain brain time travel. I don't. How would you refer to that? You know, See, I have to say I was really shocked because I had always sort of thought that like Valida was going to end up accidentally saving the bricklayer because there's still that question about how he disappeared, right? And I thought like the theory I had going on is that Valida's like vibing around on Nebos and she runs into him as he's about to be crushed. And she's like, hey, bud, what's going on? Let's not be crushed. And she grabs his hand and like numes him through time. And it works because he's also alien of the red goo, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and this is the theory that I had going in my head about what happens. And in fairness, it also still kind of is possible because they're still technically physically on me both. So his ghost is still vibing there. So I don't know. Maybe that was what I had. Well, in I, was, I was going to wonder, is he like a, a, a essentially a force ghost like Rettleman? Yes, that's what I was about to say. That's too. what I thought as well. So my first thought was when Rettleman voice came up, I thought it was a bricklayer, and I thought he was Force Ghost just vibing. But then it was Rettleman, and I was like, "Okay, sure, buddy, come join us in our Force Ghost adventures." <laughs> Did you ever just really want to pull an Obi Wan? <laughs> or is Rettleman really the bricklayer? <laughs> Well, that's definitely not the case, but I, I do. Well, there are some theories going around that Adam is the bricklayer. Like some people are just asking this randomly on Reddit. And I'm like, sir, where'd you get this theory from? Like where, please present to me your thesis and not just the thesis statement. I would like the whole text, please, because I cannot follow this. Like I mean, that sounds like Dario is Benjin is cold hands. Like exactly. I'm like that's some deep diving Game of Thrones. No offense <laughs> to you, but this sounds like you pulled this out of your ass. And even if you did, though, I would like to see the reasoning or like you know straight up the sentence. IDK just think it would be cool, and I just I just want some sort of explanation because like. I feel like multiple people said it on Reddit, and I'm like, where is your cult? Please show me the entrance. I wish to understand. <laughs> if any of you guys are here, please, please show me the entrance. I wish to understand. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, I can't wait till, like, after this episode is turned into a podcast and I've, like, posted the summary on our website, I plan on posting, like, all of our coverage on the subreddit and being like, so... Here are like highlights. I, I mean, I'm gonna post the link to our coverage, but also like be like, here are like our highlights of the series and what we're you know wondering, thinking, pondering, whatever. I, I was a little like, not, I know it isn't very right. I was a little kind of like disappointed that when I got to the end of the book, the first thing I did after I finished reading was go to the subreddit and find the most recent post. About, that was discussing the end of the series. And I was like, you know, honestly, I kind of want Bancroft to turn his writing. Is he writing a Cosmere situation like Sanderson where everything is going to be connected? Like his next series is going to be part of the same universe. 
and it's going to be not not have the same characters show up necessarily certainly not the main ones but it could it's possible and someone was like he doesn't write he doesn't like churn out books fast enough and i'm like i don't see how that matters uh i guess my question was it turns out books left and right but all all that Bancroft or anybody really has to do to weave worlds together or to, to, to create a cosmic situation is to weave their worlds together. And with Senlin, you know, and everyone going into space, he can absolutely do that. Um, I think the other question I would have is did Sanderson, like, well, I, I, I'm not a Sanderson person. I haven't read his books, but like, did he say when he was making like the, when he was writing these series that they were interconnected, like, did he ever like, Yes, at some point, yeah. Okay. Uh, I don't, I don't know that it was immediately. Like I, because okay. I, that, that's the thing. Like I, I came in, I came into Sanderson's works. I don't want to say late because I've been here for the publication of like half the Stormlight Archive, but um, I, I, it, I don't think it was right away. Did he know it right away? Probably, right? I, I think that if you're going to build that sort of world, you do have to know it from the start. But I don't... All I, all I can think of right now is just, like, sending Bancroft an email. That's the Frodo gift that's like, sure, keep your secrets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't think... You know, it, 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 yeah, no, that's the right word. It annoyed me a little bit that somebody was like, well, he doesn't write, he doesn't turn out books fast enough to be Sanderson. I was like, I'm not saying he's trying to be Sanderson. I'm saying that there's a chance he could build a Cosmere situation in which all of his worlds are interconnected. All also, like, is Sanderson doesn't own that concept. Like, no. Like, I'm sorry, internet people. Like, chillax. And as uh, frankly, as long as you write faster than George R.R. Martin, you can do whatever you like. <laughs> or, uh, oh my god. So the irony, the irony is Martin actually used to write really fast. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he slowed in his old age. Poor man. <laughs> he did not know what he signed up for. <laughs> he slowed. He, so we know why he slowed. Okay, so going back to just general thoughts on this series, uh, not even this series, just just part three, because there was there was some cute, fun stuff that happened that I wanted to touch on. One of them being when Tarot and Finn Goal come onto the ship, and like one of the first things that happens is they have this little dinner party. <laughs> And Byron is making all of these like so like fancy, awesome, apparently very good, tasty dishes. And Tarot and Finn are just kind of mostly starved. And Tarot is just like, oh my gosh. Like they see Byron and they're they're, you know, they might be a little bit like, ooh, weird at first, but it's like it, it's it's that split. It's not even a stumble. And Tarot is like, "Sir, are you the chef?" And he just immediately like starts dropping praise on Byron. And poor Byron is like, "I don't know how to do. It. I don't know how to take this." And Tarot is like, "I will do the dishes for the chef." 
It's just the cutest. I have never identified with the character more in my life at that moment because it was Byron being like, no, I'm doing the unnecessary shit that I want to do, Anne, and you cannot convince me otherwise. Because Anne is absolutely team. They're starving. Just give them a steak and they will mm -hmm. eat it. Like, just, like, dice it and, like, fry it to death. They will eat it, sweetie. And Byron's like, no, I shall be an artiste and i'm like i i vibe buddy i get it and then and then he goes like out a 25 like, course meal or something i mean that's hyper right but like he goes out and he's immediately like how do i compliment what do i do because i'm also the same because if people compliment me at first i'm like oh thanks and then i just like start to like emotionally turn red because i can't quite do that physically but i start to like i do that thing where i'm like oh thanks 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 and i just hide or make terrible faces or and all i could imagine was just byron like just trying to like get out and he was like what do i do and meanwhile tarot my sweet my sweet giant man just what a good good bean and he was like yeah. I will, sir let me do the dishes for you and i will like be best friends with this deer okay yeah it's it's so cute i hope i, I just Tarot I want Tarot to be a sous chef. Oh my god! I, I just I want I just want to you know like with Finn it's like uh he wasn't great you know but like I'm I'm hoping that he has the ability to go back to his family and to become a better person with the proper leadership and 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 guidelines shall we say? But Tarot is never a bad guy. Like he did dumb things, right? Like staying in the tower and kind of like abandoning his wife to like yeah, did, did he do anything particularly negative other than drink too much and i, mean, not, I don't think he did any not, negative thing in, in the whole he was like a big dumb frat boy honestly but like not, not, not in that rude frat boy way just like just like just like oh my god Tarosa a himbo Yes. And he was so like, that. that's the thing. Like he didn't go back to his wife because he didn't care about her or didn't love her. He was just embarrassed about how, everything. So how just, old was he supposed to be? I always assumed like mid forties. Yeah. Like, I actually pictured him a little older originally. And I, I I'll, I'll, this is good. Tara will get this. I pictured him as a slightly younger version of Rory's father. Oh, oh. what? I'm sorry, not Roy's father, Roy's grandfather. Oh, 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 oh. Oh, okay. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I, I mean, I could see that. Like, I, and I think that he just, I mean, again, like he says it in book, in the first book, that he was just so embarrassed about what had happened that he just stayed and stayed and stayed, right? I mean, he did, it wasn't the right thing or the good thing to do, but he wasn't a bad person or a bad guy. But yeah, I agree. Himbo, for sure. We don't know if he stayed in the tower, right? There's no... I suspect he's never going back. I don't think he can. I don't think he can emotionally right now. He is so wrapped up in the like feeling of being dumb about it that like going back now is now being judged for that in a way that other people can't judge him even with knowing his story. So I don't think he can go back. I don't think he will. It doesn't fit his character. Yeah. But I think he has the ability to I think 
I think he has the ability to to like make a life for himself. Yeah. And, and I mean, I, I agree with you. I would love for him to stay in the town. Like, I thought he was going to stay on the state of the art. Maybe. Well, yeah, because right now him and Finn are both staying on the state of the on art. The state of the art, right? Aaron and Anne, I guess. Did Anne and Aaron yeah. go somewhere? There was the part where Edith was like, hey, don't worry, Aaron, you could have a vacation. And Aaron is eventually like, I don't want a fucking vacation. I just want to vibe with my wife and work, okay? And Edith is like, oh, okay, cool. I get that too. Sorry for offering you a vacation. I'll give you a paycheck instead. Is that cool? And Aaron's like, yeah, that's cool. Okay. Yeah, that was the one part I couldn't quite remember because it was it was very like a short and sweet. But all I know is... It's fine because Ren and Anne are together forever. And we're going to assume that Squit is also with them being taken very good care of, having all the warmth and cuddliness and food that that little squirrel desires and probably missing Valida, but you know, shit happens. And I'm not saying that I kind of think Squit is living in the tree at the top of the tower, but I think Squit might be living in that tree and like vibing with Edith. Maybe. And Byron, I guess. And Byron, I guess. Why not? Oh my gosh, Squid could climb around his one horn. Oh my ah! god, that would be so cute. Somebody draw this art. Give it to me. But okay, so speaking of Aaron and Anne, who else was worried as fuck about their goodbye? I was like, so scared. I there was that on a short list of people who were like the most killable before they had a lesbian girlfriend, it was it was Erin. I was so concerned. There was like a quote too about goodbyes where I was like, I do not like this. I do not like this rude. It was it was something it was a quote from the Everman's Tower about like goodbyes, you know, you never know what's going to happen when you say goodbye. And I was like, I don't like this. I don't like them saying goodbye. I don't like anything about this. I will die if something happens to one of them like because again you know and listen i i think that i think that i it wasn't that i necessarily expected bancroft to do anything right i i think i probably should have been like no he's better than that i really think i should have but at the same time we are so used to having lgbtq plus characters being buried is that true or is that just it oh, is. No, it absolutely is. Like, I, 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 it might be something that you, it is. as a straight person, as, especially like, you know, your age and everything, you might not notice, but even, you know, even. It's very it, much a problematic trope to the point where we call it barrier gays, in which there is not a happy ending, or even if they do get together in a couple, a half of that couple always has to die in most mainstream media they just don't yeah. get to be happily ever after and it's not as true now because thankfully we have a lot more queer authors writing the content and becoming mainstream so we're writing the content that we want and we're seeing that happen but in the past it has been really like it's been like you have your token gay and your token gay then dies or you have your token gay and they get their token happy ending and then they're like side character love interest dies and it's one of those things that like i always hope that a author that i like 
who's writing content that I like doesn't fall into this trap, but a part of me always fears that they're going to do it anyway. So like, you know, I'm at the point where I would say I do love Bancroft as an author. I think he, I think he's great. I will read his next book no matter what it's about. Um, so he's, he's pretty much, this is silly for, this is absurd for me to say in a way, but he's joined like NK Jemison for me, like up there on like, I'm just read everything that's out now. And frankly, one thing I will say is that if he had killed off Iran or Anne, I would not have been that confident. I would have probably still looked at his stuff, but it wouldn't have been a definitely will read. And you know, it's one of those things that like, in this time, I feel like most authors or like media creators who care are like aware of this trope and thus try to avoid it but obviously that's not always the case and like god i had so much fear of this whole book that that was going to happen especially especially with all the goodbyes talk and the talk about how i hate goodbyes like Anne hiding in a closet because she didn't want to say goodbye i was like this is building up for a tragedy and if it happens I will riot. And then it didn't happen. And I was like, this is great. This is the emotional catharsis that I needed. The build up to the tragedy. And then it's like, don't worry, bud. You got your happy ending. And that in a way was also really nice. Like emotionally, was I very distressed for the time? Yes. Do I also appreciate Bancroft for like, in a way, like, like feeding into my fears and then giving me the happy ending and like reassuring me that like this was the happy ending that was coming like absolutely like i like like my heart feels free and the fact that like anna naren got their happy ending i'm just so glad and like also like elderly gays getting their happy ending and like i say elderly obviously very very generously because at best Anne is like mid-40s she's not actually elderly but like any gay who's like over mid-30s is considered old these days especially because of like life sucking for older gays and just like seeing older gays be happy is just oh, my heart is full yeah that was I was so worried and nothing came of it and I was just like oh thank god like, and I'm also, you know, it was one of those, like, I, I want to be a little bit mad at him for, for, you know, pushing the goodbyes thing, but also it was like, okay, but you didn't do the bad thing. So I can't, I can't really be mad. In a way, it was kind of nice because, like, for me, it was like I got all the satisfaction of like the tension of a good story yeah. without ever having the actual bad ending. And I was like, "All right, yeah, okay, I'll take this." Um, I'm not saying that I did spoil it for myself whether they would die or not because the anxiety got a bit too much for me at a point. But honestly, I'm like that with everything. So, like, who's even surprised? I'm just really glad I didn't spoil the entire ending for myself, although I almost did. So, so you jumped ahead in this one too? Of course I did. John, who do you think I am? <laughs> <laughs> who do you think you're talking to? We need to come up with a nickname, Jump Ahead Nami. That's not good. That's not good. That's not good, but we're coming up with something for you. <laughs> it was really bad. I appreciate the sentiment. It was so bad. It was so bad. But like spoiler alert Nami or something. Yeah. I can honestly say I don't think I've ever done that with any any medium. 
So I didn't used to do that, actually. I used to be able to, you know, consume media normally from the beginning to the end, like a regular person. <laughs> but um, now uh, existence is so stressful that I'm like, if my book is stressing me out to the point that I'm having anxiety about it, like, don't do that to yourself. So, just... so do you, well, why don't you just read them backwards then? Um, well, because then it's gibberish. Like playing a country song backwards, get your dog back, get your house back, get your wife back. <laughs> uh, there's literally a song called "Playing a Country Song Backwards." I think it's called. I think it's by Rascal Flatts. <laughs> That's amazing. Speaking of the death thing, so the Sphinx is just dead, uh, and that was really underwhelming to me. Like, I just, it was so sad. Like. Like it was so anticlimactic and so yeah. sad. And it was just, it was like tragic in a way that I am still kind of not ready to confront because it was like this woman basically gave her existence to trying to keep this tower alive. And when she died, she had nobody who cared about her near her. And I was just so yeah. unbearably sad for her, yeah. especially because after the fact, like obviously, like Walita and um Edith like are very sad about her passing but like she never and knows Byron. That. And Byron and Byron yeah and like she never knows that and like I think that is like like such a tragedy all like wrapped up like and I think like with all of like the mistakes that she made and like the retreat that she made from society like dying alone under a tree like speaking too slow to be coherent not even having all of her last words said, like, God, it made me so sad. I'm so sad right now. Uh, yeah. Go go ahead, John, then go ahead. Well, I actually thought it was a, I actually thought it was sort of interesting that he chose that to, because. Oh, for sure. It's, it's a little out of the, that's a, it was a little out of the ordinary. I mean, the, the standard would have been, they come back, the Sphinx is alive, then she gives her last words and then sends them off to save the day. Yeah, I, I don't I'm I wouldn't argue with the choice, right? But I it 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 is it was to me just kind of like and I also think it it, it had to be that way for things to I don't know. I mean, I guess the the other option is that they find her barely alive and she's like, if Marat wins, tell him all of this. But Edith, if you win, and then she dies like halfway through like the sentence or something. And and that I, that's kind of cliche, maybe. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. And I think that's part of what John is saying. And like John, I super agree. Like I wasn't expecting her to be dead like this because that's not the trope. Like that's not like that's not the like old guidance figure trope. The old guidance figure is you go back to Yoda as Yoda's dying and Yoda tells you his last words on his deathbed. You know? Like like that's not what the trope is. And in a way, I think I think the reason this kind of struck me so much was double because one, obviously, it's like a clear reversion of a trope, but it is also a reversion of a trope in a very, very effective storytelling way. Because I think, I think the thing that Bancroft has done especially well 
in this series is even if you do not like how the story ended, even if you do not like how we went to space, even if you did not like specific things, every character's journey had a clear arc and a clear journey occurring. And I think that's really important because we are so used to stories where characters just serve the purpose of furthering one character's arc instead of every single character having their own journey. And I think, you know, the character arc that made sense, quote unquote, for the Sphinx in typical storytelling is that her character arc fuels Edith becoming the Sphinx and it fuels her story very directly. But instead, the Sphinx does that, but she also has this separate story of her own about like losing faith in humanity, losing faith in yourself, like loneliness and like, like the fall of genius and like what that means and what it means to like be alone and all of this that's like very central to her and like very much her own story and her own character arc that she has at the same time while still fulfilling that character arc for Edith and like like forwarding the journey of the other characters that she needs to do like her purpose isn't just forwarding the journey like she serves her own purpose as well and I think that's like chef's kiss in a way because i ran yeah. out of words <laughs> yeah, yeah it was in a way i like i'm just like my whole thing is that like i don't it it kind of bores me in this day and age where a character when a character is just a plot device and obviously characters can and should be plot devices otherwise they're pointless but you can be a plot device and have your own story as well and I think Bancroft does that very well with all of these characters. Like every single story, like every single character and every single thing is obviously there to further the plot. But also at the same time, every single character that you see for more than a few minutes, like, like has their own story that they're furthering. Like, like Finn Gull, literally the most insignificant little dude who just like, like did bullshit in book two, right? Like he's still there. He's still got his own motivations, his own story, his own background that makes us sit here and be like, huh, I wonder how Finn Gold is doing after this. And the fact that we can care about Finn Gold shows that like there was like really good character building going on here. Mm -hmm. I love character building. Sorry, this is a bit of an aside. There's this whole thing about like how your reading path is like a different, like you book and you like media based off of whether it corresponds to your reading path and your reading path is what the book focuses on. So it's something like plot, language, characters. And I think there's two others and I can't remember what they are, but I am realizing more and more that I am very much a character driven person. If the characters suck, I am not about it. Yeah, <laughs> no, I agree with you are good. Bancroft did such a good job, right? And and I, when I say like that the Sphinx is, like them discovering the Sphinx was underwhelming, it was, right? No, I, I, I agree with you, absolutely. It was underwhelming. I don't necessarily think it was the worst choice, writing-wise, story-wise, whatever, character-wise. I just think it was underwhelming. Oh yeah, I absolutely agree. I think I think something can be underwhelming and still be a good storytelling choice. And I, for me, both of those simultaneously exist, which is why I'm like, yeah, no, that was, that was just like, I, I remember reading that scene and just being like, what she did? Are you sure? And I like rewinded my audiobook and re-listened to it because I was sure I misheard. And Belita is very, I think, I mean, Edith 
and Byron are obviously sad about it, but Valida is the one that's like, but like she's she's real upset. That that was, and also she didn't even get to like. It's probably for the best, and I said that. I think I, I kind of wrote that in the into the summary. I think it was for the best that Valida wasn't there when they discovered the Sphinx, because I think that would have been a whole different issue. I feel bad for her, but I agree. Yeah, I also think like Edith and like having her own like that like reflection that Edith has about being about like being like oh maybe I didn't tell Valida what was happening because I wanted to be selfish in my grief was just such a like oh. That just, whew, right in the field, please. Was there anything you guys think we have missed talking about before we kind of do an overall conclusion on our feelings of this series? No, other than they could have titled the books a little differently. Sendland Ascends, Sendland Descends, Sendland Ascends again. <laughs> well, he doesn't ever descend, though. Yes, he did. Oh, I guess in the, in the, in the Hot King? Yeah. He descends a little bit, a little yeah. bit, but not yeah. all the way back to the bottom. So, Sedlin bursts his face. So, okay. So, Sedlin really ascends. <laughs> he like really super ascends by forever. So, okay. I think that in conclusion, what I would like each of us to do, and I'll start just to give an example, is a kind of real quick you know, overall thought on the series and what you would rate it. Maybe let's say, do we want to do out of five or out of 10? What's a sassy thing <laughs> to rate something? Towers. We can rate it towers out of eight. Ringdoms. Ringdoms. Five ringdoms. Yeah. We'll, we'll, rate, we'll rate this particular series by ringdoms. So close to what Nami is saying, but uh, so at, at, out of, out of, I think out of 10 is probably best. I think five is always a bad, it, it, that's a bad yeah so my thoughts on this i do think it should have been at least one more book that said i really 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 love this series i mean i would put it up there i think this is after the grishaverse books i think this is probably my favorite one that we've covered i i and don't get me wrong i love davabod i loved jesus uh broken earth i the Temer is probably the only series we've covered that I didn't super love, but I I think this after Grishaverse or maybe at on par with Grishaverse is fave series out of the ones that we have covered on this webcast podcast. And I had started reading this a long time ago. And I remember thinking when I read the first and again, when I read the second books, like, why isn't this published, you know, by a major publisher? And then it got picked up and it deserved to be picked up. And I really hope it gets made into a TV series. I think a TV series, but I guess a movie series could work. But I, I do think it should have been more than four books. Uh, out of 10 ringdoms, I think I would give it an 8.5 or 9. Yeah, probably a nine. I think I'd give it nine out of ten ringdoms. So, uh, Jonathan, you go next. Your turn. So I I had more fun with this series than I did, for example, the Broken Earth trilogy. It was not nearly as good as the Broken Earth trilogy, um, in my mind. Uh, and I I set I separate books that I have fun with with things that are actually good because they are not all the same thing. Um, but 
I'd say it's, I'd say seven to seven and a half for me. I mean, it was solid. It was well above average. It certainly kept me entertained for multiple nights. I didn't feel bored reading it. I never said, oh, please let this end. Um, <laughs> you know, well, I'll be honest. I st the Broken Earth trilogy started that way for me because I really had trouble with that second person yeah. viewpoint. I, I was struggling mightily with it. And I'm like, oh my God, if the whole book's going to be the second person, I'm going to die. <laughs> but um, so, yeah, yeah, solid. Um, you know, in the great books of the 20th century, or tw actually, we're in the 21st century. Um, I don't think it's going to be there, but I, I definitely think it's a worthy read if you want to enjoy yourself. All right. It's, it's my turn now. So I, I do agree with you a lot, John. I definitely agree that it wasn't as good as Broken Earth Trilogy, but I do agree that it was a fun book series, unlike Broken Earth Trilogy. And I, I definitely maintain that Broken Earth is one of my new all-time favorites. So like you can really enjoy a not fun book, but a fun book it does add a different layer to the experience. So I will say as far as, you know, rankings, as far as the series we've covered, it's Broken Earth and it is Temeraire. <laughs> Sorry, that was the biggest joke I could have said. <laughs> Nobody even believed me. <laughs> you... But no, it's Broken Earth and it's this series. I would give this a 9 or a 9.5. Um, I think the thing that did it for me is the fact that like it has a lot of the same like character-driven content that I enjoy along with the commentary on like the world and like the injustices that I enjoy in a way that wasn't as like heavy and constantly sad as Broken Earth because the overall vibes I would give Broken Earth is very sad and the overall vibes I would give this book series is that yeah it was dark at times but like we do have a triumphant and hopeful end whereas broken earth it's more like uh... <laughs> so yeah definitely not it hasn't beat broken earth for me but this was definitely a 9.5 if this was out of five i would have given it five stars and none of the other book series besides broken earth got that i think dave abad might have gotten that I like David. I like David Bod better than this, personally. But interesting, good to know. I enjoyed David Bod a lot, but I personally thought like some parts, like some pacing parts, dragged a little more for me compared to this. I would say both of those book series are kind of like middling same for me. I think I think they were both good in different ways. Me, a Libra. Don't get me wrong. I freaking love Broken Earth, but. I at this point in my life, I was like, I need something. I need something positive, and I think that's why I like this one better. Yeah, okay, yeah. So on that note, I'm gonna close with a. This isn't so much a quote as it is a passage, but I love this passage so much uh, that I I I went back and forth. I was like, oh, should I choose a short quote? No, no, no. It needs to be this. So. This is from when Edith goes into the pyramid and they are, they, the, the, the Nabozans have been voting on whether or not to expel the Hod orphans and also hang 
Adam and Bruno for bringing the hot orphans into Nebos. And Edith walks in and she sees what's going on and she sees that they have voted by just barely to do the bad things. And Edith says, it seems to have been a close vote. That's a razor margin if I ever saw one. Perhaps the count is off. Edith tapped the dead bee upon the podium as if just striking upon a solution. I have it. Why don't we vote again, just to be sure? A show of hands would suffice. The bonneted woman seemed to turn a sicklier shade of pale. The bonneted woman was somebody who was already being a bitch to you, BT dubs. This is an outrage. You can't cancel an accord just because you don't like the results. Edith smiled as she draped her iron arm over the podium. It's just a show of hands. All those who wish to hang one of the Sphinx's emissaries and expel thousands of malnourished children in defiance of the bricklayer's will and the bounds of basic decency, please raise your hands. This is intimidation! I can't help it if your conscience has embarrassed you. Surely what you believe in private, you can also espouse in public? There's no cause to feel intimidated. <sighs> Oh, Edith, I love you. Heart, 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 heart. <laughs> 16 hearts for Edith. Edith's cosplay incoming. I, I mean, 25,000 <laughs> hearts for Edith. <laughs> and on that note, once again, I'm Tara along with Jonathan and Ami. Thank you for joining us for Sagas and Sass. We'll be back on Wednesday, May the 4th to discuss. Star Wars, because it's Wednesday, May the 4th. And for many of us, me especially, Star Wars is the saga that kind of started it all. So we will see you in a few weeks for our Star Wars episode. Thank you for listening to the Sagas and Sass podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Sagas and Sass.